0: Welcome to Hacking Your ADHD, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, William Kerb, and I have ADHD. On this podcast, I dig into the tools, tactics, and best practices to help you work with your ADHD brain. Going online has its perks. We've got a wealth of information at our fingertips, but with so much information, it can be hard to find the truth. Often, we can't find the signal for the noise because, well, it's just really noisy, and By noisy, I mean there's just a lot of bad information out there. In today's episode, we're going to be looking specifically at science journalism, but really most of what we're going to be talking about can be applied to everything that we read online. We want to be getting the best information, and so we've got to be cautious about our sources. So we're going to be looking at ways that research can be manipulated to support a flimsy claim, why we've got to go beyond reading the headlines, and what to watch out for when we are reading those articles. If you'd like to follow along on the show notes page, you can find that at hackingyouradhd.com slash badscience. All right, keep on listening to find out how good science can go bad. Let's start this episode off with a question. Is coffee good for you? I'll give you a minute to gather your thoughts on this one. Well, actually, I'm pretty sure we all had a knee-jerk reaction one way or another. So now I'm going to ask, how do you know? What led you to your decision on coffee? Perhaps you read an article that supports your daily pick-me-up, or perhaps you don't care if it's good for you. And I'm sure at least some of you landed on, well, it depends, because yes, having one cup of coffee in the morning is very different from having 37 cups, because that's just too many cups. I mean, at least I think it is. Regardless, we've all got these ideas in our heads about the facts we know. Sometimes that information is right, and sometimes... Well, I used to believe that I had to worry about sharks in the pool. The point here is that where we get our information from matters. But more than just going to trusted sources, we've also got to make sure that we aren't falling to easily manipulated data. We've got to go beyond just reading headlines. In 2015, there was a lot of buzz around a scientific study showing that chocolate could help you lose weight. Major news outlets all over the world picked up the story But the problem was that it was junk science, and I'm not mincing words here. This was a study specifically designed to show the flaws in science reporting, as in they purposely used bad science in their research to demonstrate how some science journalists don't always do their due diligence. It was actually brilliantly done, as they conducted a real study, and their data did show that while on a low-carb diet and eating chocolate, you could lose weight 10% faster than other participants in the study. Don't get too excited though, because that last piece there is crucial in how the study was able to get these results. It didn't actually show anything about the general population, and that's because one of the methods they used to get these results was by having a small sample size. The study only had 15 participants who were split into three groups, one low-carb, one low-carb with a bar of chocolate, and a control, which meant that each group only had five people in it. The problem with a small sample size like that is that it is incredibly hard to separate correlation from causation. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, and it just means that because something happened, we don't always know what caused it. For example, if I went to get ice cream every day for a week, and it rained every day I went, well, I'd have a pretty strong argument that me going for ice cream was making it rain, right? Well, perhaps me living in Washington State is a much better explanation for the rain. But nonetheless, from my data, I can show that going to get ice cream means that it will rain. And that's the point here. If instead of just looking at a week's worth of data, I looked at data from over a few months, I'm pretty sure that, one, I'd be sick of getting ice cream, and, two, that it didn't rain every time I went. When you don't have enough data points, it becomes a lot easier to see trends that aren't actually there. While my example takes us to the ridiculous, we still see this kind of stuff in some science reporting. Most journals won't accept studies with fewer than 30 participants now, but that's still a low number. I'm not saying that every study needs to be gigantic. Big studies require a lot of funding that most researchers won't have access to. As well, for more extensive studies to happen, they need smaller studies to happen first. Scientists need a jumping-off point to do the big stuff, and as consumers of science, we've got to understand that we can't base everything off those initial studies. And this isn't to say that just having more participants is going to make a study better. It is also crucial to look at how the data is being collected and what is being looked at. In the fake chocolate study, the researchers were looking at 18 different measurements, from weight to cholesterol to sodium to sleep quality, and even just overall well-being. The study packed in a ton of variables to look at. This sounds great on the outset because, hey, look at all the data they could be collecting. But in this case, the researchers were really doing something called p-hacking. Basically, when doing statistical models, the p-value is the probability of obtaining results. Yes, it is more complex than that, but We'll leave it at that for simplicity's sake right now. Now, with the limited number of subjects in the study and all the variables that they were measuring, they were able to all but guarantee to find something with some sort of statistical significance. Most of the time, researchers aren't trying to use these tricks to deceive people. Scientists will add more variables as they run the experiment because they have limited resources and are trying to pack in as much as they can into one study. Unfortunately, as you add in more variables, you also add in a lot more random chance. This is why we've seen a ton of studies with really questionable results that are technically statistically significant. And all of this is important because science is having a bit of a replication crisis right now. Typically, for a study to really hold weight, it needs to be replicated. But most studies never are replicated. And just real quick, replication means that a different group of scientists takes the methodology of one study and does the whole study over again. Replication allows scientists to see if the results were, well, a result of the methodology or were just a fluke of some unknown variable. Unfortunately, we're not seeing a lot of replication in science right now because it's tough to get funding to reproduce a study. If you were handing out grants, would you be giving more money to cutting-edge new ideas or to someone trying to prove something that had already been shown to be true? I wish we'd be doing more replication, but it's human nature to want the new thing. And again, most scientists aren't doing this on purpose, but of course, there are also bad actors using junk science to push their own agenda. But, fortunately for us, we can use our knowledge of how bad science works to sniff out both sides of this. Armed with this knowledge, I know it's easy to conclude that we just need to stop trusting science. And that's a problem. Science is our best resource for reliable information. So instead of turning our trust from science, we've got to do better at judging science for ourselves. This means taking more time to understand what we're reading and making sure that we're not passing on bad information. I talked about a few of the ways that we can identify problems with scientific studies earlier, like small sample sizes, but there are a host of other things that we should be looking at when reading about science. The easiest thing that we can do is just to go beyond the headlines. Unfortunately, in our clickbait world, many journalists use catchy headlines to draw your eyeballs, even if those headlines aren't, well, 100% accurate. And I know I'm guilty of repeating some headlines I glanced at while scrolling through Reddit. It's easy to do because, hey, why would someone be reporting on this if it wasn't true? No one would just go on the internet and tell lies, right? So this brings up the question if you should be going and just looking at the scientific papers themselves. Well, if that's your thing, have at it but let me tell you, most of those papers are not that ADHD-friendly. I did my fair share of science classes in college, and I learned how to read through a science journal, and I still often get lost. In an ideal world, it would be great if we could just look at the original research and it was easy to read. But often, the researchers are writing for other researchers. They write their papers in ways that are easiest for their colleagues to reach, not for the layperson. That means that papers are full of jargon and can be hard to parse. Not to mention the difficulty you can have accessing some of that research. So this means that we're often relying on science reporting. And as we saw earlier with the chocolate study, that can have problems. Our best bet is starting with a trusted source. And I absolutely do not mean major news outlets, who are unfortunately some of the worst offenders at propagating bad science. And we don't want to just Google whatever question we have and hope that whatever pops up first is reliable. As a hint, if the site has ads for celebrity gossip, it probably isn't too reliable. Beyond that, we can look at what information the articles we are reading are supplying. At the minimum, we are going to want to know the basics of what a study entailed. How many people were involved? How long did it go on? Was there a control group? Also, does the article at least cite the paper it is talking about? If it isn't at least linking to the research, that should be a red flag. Then we can look at the wording of the article to help us understand how much we should trust the results. If we see words like proved, then we can safely assume that whatever was proven absolutely was not proven. Science doesn't prove anything, especially in just one study. A scientific study will only create evidence that will either support a claim or refute it. And another red flag here comes from reporting that uses overly jargonistic writing. Often, at first, this can seem to make total sense. The reporters using the language that the researchers would use. And in some cases, that is true. But often, we're also getting fed words that are being used in the wrong way. This may not seem like a big deal, but it can lead to some serious misinterpretation of results. We've also got to look for things like potential conflicts of interest from the researchers. This is actually a huge issue when we hear about ADHD research, because so much of it is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. This is absolutely a conflict of interest. However, ADHD is also one of the most widely studied conditions, which brings me to my next point. With the issue of lack of replication, one of the best ways we can see if a study is valid is to look at how many other studies are also in that field. Because ADHD has so much research behind it, we can trust a lot more of the data that comes out because we have more studies that can serve as corroborating evidence. Even with all this information, we're still going to fall prey to bad science sometimes. That's okay. We can learn from it and change our opinions. That's even how science works. You start off with a hypothesis, and then test that hypothesis over and over again. If your hypothesis is shown to be wrong, then you update your thinking. You don't just stick with the bad information because that's what you want to believe. Okay, maybe some of us do cling to the bad information sometimes. And yes, sometimes I'm still scared there might be a shark in the pool. I think more than ever, it is important for us to make sure that we're aware of the statistics we're reading and what they mean. Everyone wants answers about COVID-19 right now, but unfortunately, we're still really early on in this crisis. That means while scientists are scrambling to get a lot of good information out to us, there's also a lot of bad information coming out as well. Our best defense right now is making sure that we are being cautious about what information we are following. Make sure that if you are passing information on, that it is coming from a trusted source. Make sure that the information that you are taking in is valid. Be skeptical of things that don't sound right or sound too good to be true. Be skeptical of things that you see coming from your friends on social media. Where did they get that information? Did they validate it? One of my favorite podcasts that's been keeping me up to date with what's going on with the virus always reminds me in the beginning that what they are discussing today might not be relevant in a week. There is a lot of information, and it's always changing. I mean, just a few weeks ago, the CDC was telling us wearing masks wouldn't help, and they just revised that recommendation telling everyone they should be wearing them now. The point here is that when you're getting new information, don't let that be your only source of information. Don't let that information make you panic. Panic is bad, and with ADHD we're already prone to impulsivity. Panic is only going to make that worse. If we can slow down and work out what we actually need to do, we're going to be on much better footing, and you know, not be one of the people hoarding toilet paper. Thanks for sticking with me all the way to the end. Before you go, though, let's do a quick rundown of today's top tips. One, while most scientists aren't trying to create bad science, lack of funding and time can make many studies suspect. To help validate claims, read into the study's methodology and see what other research supports those claims. Two, make sure that you are reading beyond just the headlines. Many overzealous reporters will embellish headlines to garner more clicks. Three, watch for words like proved science doesn't actually prove anything. It just creates evidence that supports a claim or refutes it. Four, be skeptical of claims that seem too good to be true. They usually are. And that's it. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HackingYourADHD, or you can connect with me over at HackingYourADHD.com contact. If you'd like links or to read this episode's transcript, you can go to the show notes page at hackingyouradhd.com slash bad science. If you're this far into the end of the show, you might also be interested in the other podcasts on the ADHD Rewired podcast network. For in-depth interviews with fellow ADHDers and ADHD experts, check out ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers. If you're a parent with ADHD or have a child with ADHD, definitely check out Brendan Mahan's show, ADHD Essentials. Both shows are definitely worth a listen. I also do a live Q&A with Eric and Brendan every second Tuesday of the month at 10 a.m. Pacific. If you'd like to register for the next one coming up on April 14th, just go to ADHDrewired.com slash events. All right, it's been a pleasure, and until next time, stay safe.